You know, folks, if you can't tell by the background right here, you are in for a real treat today. I heard the man to my left speak approximately one month ago to an audience of about 200 to 250 contractors. In his first time on stage, he brought the house down. A standing ovation, everybody. Now, he's going to be humble about it here in a few minutes, and you're going to hear this story. But I knew this. In a matter of just a few years, there will be people that want him on stages across this country. And today, though, you have a first look, really a first opportunity to hear from somebody who will be a leader in this country for years and years to come. His story is going to captivate you, but what you're going to take away from the next hour, I promise you, will change your life if you listen to it. To my left right now, I'm happy and pleasure, believe me, it's an honor to introduce to you Mr. Tommy Richardson. How are you? Um, um, that's quite the introduction. <laughs> you know, I tried to be a little bit of Ed Milet meets uh, Pat McAfee yeah. on that one right there and yeah. introducing you. But that was a great combo. But no, I'm doing good, man. I appreciate you guys coming to North Carolina and hanging out with me for a couple hours. And um, I'm looking forward to just talking, man. Grew up on this farm. Got your house right here behind us. Is it one of the main reasons you decide to, to go to the military? Well, what was it? The small town? Was it? What was it exactly? It's it's a weird story of how I ended up there. So my great grandfather is the only person in our family who had served, uh, and he was in World War II in the Philippines. A buddy of mine, his dad was in the military, and he he didn't have a car. So he's like, hey man, I need you to drive me up to the recruiter's office. I was like, all right, cool, whatever. I'll, I'll drive you up there. So I drove him up there, and the, uh, the recruiter asked me how I felt about joining the military. I was like, never thought about it. Yeah. And uh, kind of got to talking to him a little bit. One thing led to another. I was like, all right, I'll go take the ASVAB. Took the ASVAB. I scored in like the mid-80s on the ASVAB, which is a pretty decent score. Um, he's like, dude, you can pretty much get any job you want for the most part, minus a couple of them. I was like, all right. Uh, I was like, but if I'm going to join the military, I'm going to go do something in the military I can't do here. All right. So I was like, I'm going to do infantry if that's what we're going to do. When I got the phone call, my wife and I were walking around the state fair. I got a phone call from him. And Tommy said, Dad, uh, Army recruiters coming to visit and going to eat supper with us tonight. I said, yeah, right. <laughs> I phone and I said, oh, by the way, and I told my wife, I said, oh, by the way, the Army recruiters coming to visit. And we got upset. And I said, your son is not going into the Army. <laughs> we good? All right. Come on in, guys. Sweet. I signed up December 7th. I think that's when I actually signed the papers that said I would go. What well, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when you. My date that I was supposed to leave and go to basic training was January tenth. It's also her birthday. Okay. Mom called my recruiter and said, oh, "My no, baby." They were here. Oh, that's right. They were. They were Bob here. Told him, "My baby ain't leaving on my birthday." <laughs> and had my time that I was going to basic training moved back a day, so she didn't have to send me off to basic training on her birthday. And you were the only one that left. And I was the only freaking one that left. <laughs> <laughs> I just by myself. But I got a little older. There you go. Go, Mom. 
I dropped him off on my birthday, but he did. It was leave. late. It was late. It was late. Night. I did. We did the eight o'clock yeah. drop off, but yeah, he did not leave on my birthday. Yeah. yeah. Sergeant Tate looked at me and went, "Okay, okay." <laughs> and scratched it off and redid the paperwork. So you end up there. At that time, you're 270 pounds from what I. Yeah, I was a big boy. You're a big boy. Yeah. Um, they get you off the basic training. How do you come back from basic? Who's Tommy as he comes back from basic training? A hell of a lot more disciplined. Um, my mom uh, still kind of talks about that time when they came for family day weekend. And I went into their hotel room and it was a mess and I cleaned everything up and put it where it was supposed to be because it was driving me nuts. Uh, prior military me would have never done that. Um, I, my, my mental strength was was better not that it was bad before i went in but i had more mental fortitude um i certainly had something that i was fully passionate about and i was completely bought into of being in the military being in the infantry and this is my purpose in life like i this is what i'm built for this is what i'm meant to do so you know coming out i was i was all in dude i was i was ready to go I was, I was ready to go overseas. I was ready to do whatever I needed to do to, you know, serve the country. And so what do they do? Do they ship you overseas? Do you stay here stateside? What happens as you begin the military? Yeah, so we deployed around December 8th, December 9th. That's the day that we left. And um, we got to, I think it took us about two weeks before we were actually in Baghdad. We spent, spent about two weeks in Kuwait, uh, just climatizing, getting used to the time change, all that good stuff. Uh, so we ended up in Baghdad, uh, golly, man, it was December 24th, 2008. That's, that's really the day that everything, everything really shifted and went in a completely different direction of where I thought my life was going. So we were, uh, it was late that night. We had just got back from eating and we're, we're cleaning, we're, we're kind of like cleaning, organizing our room a little bit, like. For us, it's Christmas Eve. We're just trying to get settled in. Everybody's got their little Christmas movies that they want to watch and all that good stuff. So, like, I'm trying to get settled in so I can go to sleep. I'm, I'm popping in at Charlie Brown's Christmas because it's something that, you know, we always watched as a kid. And I wanted a little bit of home, you know. And um, next thing I know, I hear this little clanging noise that, that, that kind of hits the floor. Catches my attention, I turn around, and when I look down, there's, there's a blasting cap in between my feet. Now, at the time, I didn't know what a blasting cap exactly was. What is a blasting cap for my audience? So, a blasting cap, it's about a two and a half inch long, just metal little pipe that's about as big around as your pinky, right? So, that's about how big it is. Um, and the, it can be set off in numerous different ways, but the one that was thrown into my room was an electric blasting cap, so it's set off by an electric charge. Um... It's somewhere in the general range of seven to nine volts of energy is what sets it off. So I like to kind of explain it as imagine the inner guts of a, a grenade, essentially. Like when you pull the cap, that sets it off. You got a short period of time and then it blows up and that's what throws the shrapnel everywhere, right? It's kind of how I like to explain it um, to give people an idea because everybody knows what a grenade is. So when I look down, that's what I see. I see the, I see the blasting cap sitting in between my feet. And my first instinct was to, I got to get this thing out of the room. This isn't good. I mean, I'm a young private. I don't know any better. So I pick it up. And about two seconds after I pick it up, the blasting cap goes off in my hand and it blows up. So after the blasting cap goes off, everything goes white. 
Like I can't see anything. Uh, my first instinct is that I'm blind. And then everything kind of starts coming back a little bit. Like I start seeing, start seeing little specks of things. I'm like, okay, I'm not blind. Uh, I'm going to be okay. Like everything's fine. I can still see because I still didn't know that I was actually injured. And I saw my buddy laying down on the bed across from me. And I run over there to go make sure he's okay. And about the time that my arm comes up, that's when I see blood just go everywhere. And it hit me. I was like, I'm, I'm in a bad spot here. Like, <laughs> things are not okay. And my platoon sergeant came into the room. And I remember it so vividly, like literally it happened to me yesterday. There was a smile on his face until he saw me. And then there was panic on his face. And we'll get to... We'll get to that a little bit later. But um, once he saw what happened, I mean, we go into, we go into medic mode. So Where, where's your mind at this point? I, I don't know. Like, I'm, there's so much adrenaline and shock running through me that I'm not really processing what's happening to me in this moment. I'm not really grasping. I'm just like, it's kind of like training just kicks in, right? Like, okay... I'm hurt. We got to solve the problem. I'm not really taking in that the severity and it, of what just happened. So, I mean, they get the tourniquet on. They walk me across to the um, to where the medics are. This is still on our fob that we're staying on, by the way. And we get over there and there's just medics everywhere. It's just like crap's just going like all over the place, right? Like I'm, I'm just kind of laying there on the bed, just looking up and kind of like going in and out a little bit, right? Like I'm not really, I'm not all there, but I got a pretty good idea of what's happening. And we get a few minutes in and um, then I was just like, man, my, my right arm is really, really hurting me like a lot right now. And they were like, how long has that tourniquet been on? And whatever amount of time it was, was apparently way too long. And they had the tourniquet on like way up here. So if you know anything about a tourniquet, it's supposed to go to the next closest joint of wherever the injury was. So they should have put it here. Um, and fortunately for me, um, started getting blood flow back into my arm again. So that feeling started coming back in and, and everything was good to go there. So, you know, that happened. And... Uh, my best friend that was laying on the table beside me because he had some shrapnel in his back. They were like, all right, we got to get him out of here. We got to call for a medevac. And so the Blackhawks coming in, they're about to ship me out. And he comes over, he gives me a hug. He goes, I love you, brother. You're going to be all right. And that was the last time that we spoke for probably like a year. And so the Blackhawk comes in, Blackhawks taking me out and they strap me down, um, Onto like a like a makeshift like kind of cot thing is kind of how I remember it. But I was laying there like this, and they had it running. They had the straps running across right here, trying to keep my hand above my heart, I guess. And um, I can just see out of the front of the black hog, just barely enough to where I can kind of see what's going on. And as we're taking off, um, somebody fired an RPG at the black hog, and because I could see the trail of fire coming at us. And he banked it over to the right, whoever that pilot was, and got out of the way. And we hauled tail getting out of there. So I get, we get to the green zone where the, where the hospital is in Baghdad. Um, they get me in there. 
they start checking to make sure there's no other injuries or anything like that. Um, I remember going into surgery uh, right before I went out, uh, come out of surgery, um, and, and it's Christmas Day when I come out of surgery, and I'm just kind of laying there in a bed in a hospital in Iraq, still not really grasping everything that had really happened. I just knew that I was injured, and really all I could see was that out of the top of the bandage. And, um, and yeah, then they were like, hey, do you want to call anybody? And I was like, yeah, I'll go ahead and I'll give my parents a call. That'd probably be a good idea. Um, the phone call didn't even seem real, you know, and just the process of getting him back home and then bringing him home and then having to do that, it was, it was, it was weird. Um, I remember the one time we went to the hospital when they changed her dressing and I had been changing it for weeks and it didn't bother me but something about being at the hospital that day and when they took the bandage off I passed out from looking at it and I'm like what is wrong with me um still don't know what was wrong with me that day but um but it was it's honestly it was a grateful moment because I I was grateful for having a hand to fix I called my mom, picks up the phone, and she's like, hey, I wasn't expecting to hear from you today. I was like, yeah, I, um, so I'll actually be home in about a week or a week and a half. She goes, well, what happened? I'm like, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm in the hospital, and all I can see is my ring finger and my pinky finger on my right hand. And dead silence came on the phone. Uh, next person that picked up the phone was my dad. My dad was like, what's going on? Kind of explained to him everything that I had pieced together and that, that I could remember, which is essentially what I told my mom. And of course, they have tons of questions, you know, like, what's next? Where are you going? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, guys, I don't know. I have no clue what's happening right now. Uh, all I know is that I'm coming home and they said it's going to be a week to a week and a half before I can get back. So they came in and they were doing a bandage change and they're like, do you want to see your hand? I was like, well, yeah. I mean, what am I working with or what am I not working with here, right? And the first thing that I saw when they opened up my hand is I had a hole right there that was kind of held together by that sliver of skin. And that was just a hole that I could see through. That's the first thing that I noticed. Um, it was swollen. It was green. It was nasty. I had hundreds of stitches in my hand. Um, and it just, it just didn't look good, right? I still couldn't feel it because they had a numb blocker or a, numb, a nerve blocker in my arm. So I still couldn't really feel everything just yet, but that's when it kind of clicked with me, like, holy cow, dude, like, what are we going to do? Like, how is, how is this going to look moving forward? Um, how are you going to go back to doing what you were doing? Because in my mind, I'm still going back to Iraq. Like, I'm not getting out of the military at this point. Like, I just, I just got to refigure out a new way to do everything. Like, that's, that's where I am mentally because I'm bought in. I'm, I'm here. We're going to find a way to make this work. And um, so I left Lodgestool, Germany, uh, ended up in uh, Andrews Air Force Base in Washington, D.C. And stayed there for a day. And uh, New Year's Day 2009 is when I, was when I got back to Fort Bragg. And that's when my parents actually met me at Fort Bragg when, when they dropped me off at the hospital. Right. You get back to Fort Bragg, and now you're going through the rehab portion of this entire thing, right? 
because there's got to be a portion when you get back from an injury like this where you're, I guess, being, I don't know, reintroduced to a new life. And did you find out right away? Are you going back into the military or are you not? How? Because you spend some time at Fort Bragg there, but you're not actually going back to the military, I understand, at this point. So when I came back, they put me in what's called the Wounded Warriors Battalion. Um, and they have one of those at Fort Bragg. And they say that our mission here is to heal. That is it. Right? So I was like, okay, let's go heal. In my mind, I'm still, I'm still going back. Right? Like there's, there's never been a doubt in my mind. There's never been a sliver of doubt that I, this isn't a possibility that I can stay in. Because I've always been a left-handed shooter. And I lost my right trigger finger. So I'm like, I can still shoot. That's what my job is, right? So I, I looked at it and I took it with a grain of salt. I was like, okay, let's go heal. Um, and let's start getting after it. But as time went on, like the doctors started making like small comments of, hey, when you get out, this is what you're going to have to do. You know, when, you, when you're back in the civilian life, well, you know, what's your plan for post-military and, and all this? And I'm like, hold on, am I not, am I not going back? And they're like, no. And that was about two months into it that that reality really set in. And that's when the, that's when the dark times really started happening. Is, is, is after it became a reality that I wasn't, I wasn't going back. So we're now in a point where you're coming, you're, now you're realizing, hey, listen, I ain't going back. And I want to talk about those dark times. And then I want to talk about how that translates into what you're doing right now. But where this, where this story takes an interesting turn, Tom, if you'll talk about it, is, is the realization, I think, at some point, and I don't know when it is, of how this injury happened to you. Because I believe that this is something that everyone will gasp at, in a way. And I'm, I'm hoping you will share that with my audience today. Of, because I, there, everyone out there is thinking... Who who could do this? Who did this to him? And did he want to go find him? Did you want to hurt him? It takes a, it states a certain twist here into how this injury happened to you. Yeah, everybody assumes it was terrorist. That's what everybody assumes. And that would be a phenomenal assumption. But it wasn't. Um, my platoon sergeant is the one who threw the blasting cap into the room. And... I found that out around about the same time that I found out I wasn't going back. So I'm getting all this news in a very short period of time. And, you know, somebody that you trust, somebody that you've been in battle with, somebody that you've prayed with, somebody that you've, you know, broke bread with, um, somebody that you deeply revere, to find out that he's the reason my identity got taken away from me of who I was and, and, and what I firmly believe my purpose was. Um, I mean, dude, it, it messed with me, as you can imagine. Um, and it sent me down a road of some, some rough, rough stuff. And, you know, we, we sat here. He had his wife and kids with him. Um, and we just started fishing. Just catching up, just talking. And um, and I just asked him, I was like, man, why'd you do it? Like, what happened? 
And he said it was in a container that was marked as duds. And I never in a million years thought it would go off. Well, I'm assuming then wanted to what? He play a little joke? Yeah. Watch people kind of scurry, new guys kind of panic type thing and yeah. get a little joked out of it? Yeah, because he didn't think it would ever go off, right? Um, but it did, you know, and my life radically changed because of it. Like, is there a part of me that was bitter for a time that he got to stay in the military and I'm the one who ended up getting out? Absolutely. Yeah, I was pissed off about it. But what good is that doing the military to kick out somebody who has the level of training that he has? He made one mistake. One mistake in an eight-year career to that point in the military. Like, we all screw up, man. I'm sure you've made mistakes, and I have, my dad has, I'm sure he has. That doesn't mean we get excommunicated from somebody because we made a mistake. You know, the Bible tells us to forgive people. I forgave him, not for him, but for me. Because if I didn't forgive him, I couldn't be here today. Because I would continuously hold on to that anger. I don't... I'm going to tell you how I've thought about it, because I really want to get this right. I think there would have been some, almost some relief in a way, if you would have told me a terrorist did this to me. Because then I look at it, and I'm like, it's me against the world, it's America, it's G.I. Joe, it's, you know, this son of a did this to me type thing. But then do you find almost, I feel like another part of my identity would be taken away when I, when I figure out that it wasn't the case, that it was somebody that I trusted, as you say, you broke bread with. You've got a, you're a 19 year old guy and you're new, You're having to digest all this information that's coming to you. There's no wife. There's no support system outside of your family. You're at Fort Bragg for a substantial period of time, I understand, by yourself. It's a lot to take in, brother. Yeah. Um, it took me a long time to trust people again. Uh, it took me a long time to allow people to be close to me again. It, um, it took a long time for me to, to overcome that I did nothing wrong. Because uh, for a period of time, I blamed myself for what happened. Because if I would have never touched it, it would have never blown up. Because it was your charge that did it. Natural voltage that I carry in my body that actually set it off. So I blamed myself for a very long period of time. If if I would have just left it alone, nothing would have happened. I would still have exactly what I wanted. I would still be with my unit. I would still... I wouldn't be in this godforsaken hotel room by myself with half a freaking hand being told that I'm not allowed to go work out. I'm not allowed to, you know, show up the formation. I'm not allowed to go do, go to the range and go shoot. I'm not allowed to drive my truck. I'm not allowed to do anything. I'm allowed to breathe. I'm allowed to show up the doctor's appointments. You know, they put me on a freaking dead man profile. You know, I was, my job was to heal and you know, for, for months and possibly even years, that was my thought process is that if my dumbass would have just left it alone, I wouldn't be in the situation that I'm in right now. And man, there was, man, it was nights. 
where I would sit in the hotel room by myself and just kind of fade off to sleep. And the same dream I, would, I had for months, man, it was every single night. The dream was that if I would have known it was going to blow up, I should have just put the damn thing in my mouth. So I wouldn't have to deal with any of this. At least I would have gone out doing what I was supposed to be doing. You know what I'm saying? Like, man, that dream happened over and over and over again. And it was just there. And it never went away probably until four or five years after it happened. That was a battle I fought every single day of my life. Of trying to figure out why am I even here if I can't do this. So... I'm going to ask you a question then and choose the answer or not. And to be, uh, to be open with you in the audience, I haven't asked you this question. There's no pre free written question right here. There is somebody out there, especially in, in this world that's, that watches this. And I believe that there is a higher power perhaps to watch this portion of the podcast. And so this is going to be for you, that, that particular person. Why didn't you? Why didn't you take a gun and just say, you know what? The hell with it. I'm done with it. Because I've got to think there's somebody who watches this who says, the hell with it. It's not worth it right now. I've lost everything. Wife cheats on me and leaves. I can't see my kids. I got nothing I'm living for right now. My proverbial hand has been taken away from me. I'm done with it. I'm drinking. I'm doing what... Screw it. There's nothing here for me, Tommy. You're at that point and you don't pull the trigger. Choose not to answer or tell me and not for me, okay? As a mother, you fight there. You fight that internal battle. Now he's going away to, to be in the military. He's going away to war. Um, then what happens, happens. He comes back. You're, you're making these trips to brag. You're doing all this stuff. Is there ever a time that you looked at yourself and go, I should have fought not to have him go? No. Because it was one of the best things that ever happened. I see how God's worked in him. And I know that if those steps 15 years ago hadn't happened, he wouldn't be where he is today. So I say that to say, you never know God's plan for your children. Don't stop it. Even for you, if it's the hardest thing you've ever done. Because deep down, I still knew I was here for a reason. Like, I didn't die. I didn't... I didn't lose everything. I lost a piece. You know what I'm saying? Now, granted, pretty big piece in my eyes at 19, 20 years old, right? But it was only a small piece that was taken away. I still had everything else. Everything else was still there. I still had my mom. I still had my dad and my sister and my grandparents and my support system back home. I still had my friends were still alive. They were still there. They had nobody abandoned me. Um... Like, I, I still had that. And even if somebody had abandoned me, I, there were still other people in my life that I had. And 
I was like, you know what? Like we got to, there's, there's, there's a purpose for my life and I got to figure out what that is because I have two options here. One, I can be a victim and eventually become another statistic of the 22 a day that commit suicide who are veterans. Or number two, I can go really lean into who I'm intended to be and go create generational wealth for my family. Those are, those are the only two options that I had. And I was like, I know how one ends. I don't know how the other one ends. I want to go, I want to go find out how this one goes first. And I attacked it with everything that I had and I freaking got after it. And that's not a one day long conversation with yourself. It's just not, you know, that is, that is a, that is years of having that conversation and you have to be willing to go talk to people. You have to be willing to be vulnerable and go have really difficult conversations with people that genuinely care about you. And they will help you find a purpose. They will help you along the way. And that, that's my biggest piece of advice is that if that is in fact how you're feeling right now and hey man, F it, I got nothing left in this world. I promise you, you do. There is a life for you. You have a purpose. There's, there's better things on the other side of this. The blasting cap that went off in your life does not define who you are. It is just a part of your story. You can take it and make freaking um, an amazing story out of this whole thing. You can go be the reason your family has generational wealth. You can be the reason that somebody else in your life has hope. You can be the reason that your kids even exist if you don't already have kids. You can literally bring life into this world. But you have to make that conscious effort to say, I'm not going this route. I'm going to go find out what my purpose is. And I'm going to go attack it with everything that I have. You just said, you know, it's not a one-day conversation. I... I think you're right, and I think maybe you'd agree with me on this. We've talked about similar subjects on this on this podcast, not to this in-depth before, but one of the things that I tell friends or clients if they're struggling in their business or their personal life is you don't have to make it to next year. You just got to make it one more day. You know, you got to, you, if your business is struggling, your business doesn't have to be open next year. It just has to be open tomorrow. You got to make it one more day. And I think that a lot of people underestimate the strength that they have in a day. And they may vastly overestimate the strength they have in a year. But you don't need to make it to the million dollars or to generational wealth tomorrow. But you just got to make it to tomorrow. And I think that conversation you have with yourself is a daily one. One that you go, okay, I got to have that conversation again with myself. And I've got to make it to tomorrow. And I've got to keep my business open next week. That's what I got to do. I just got to find a way to get there first. And then break that and chip away at it little by little. And know that you're not alone in that, right, Tom? I mean, there are other people that are chipping away at it little by little right now. They're having that one day at a time conversation with themselves. Yep. And, you know, like, I had a buddy of mine, um, you know, he used to drink a lot. And, I mean, he was essentially an alcoholic. 
And uh, this was probably like two or three years ago. I asked him, I said, you ever going to drink again? He was like, I don't know, but I ain't drinking today. That's loose. Well, that's, that's kind of how we have to, to look at when, when you're facing something like as serious as, as what we're talking about here. You, you have to address it that way. You know, but that's a conversation you can have with yourself. It's like, you know what? It might be an option, but not, it, ain't, it ain't an option today. Yeah. Every single day, just have that kind of, let's give it one more day and see if it gets better tomorrow. Let's give it one more day and see if, if we can get a little bit closer to what, what we're defining as success for our lives. You know, let's, let's give it one more day. So talk to me about how you begin to define that success for yourself. Because now... You're working with contractors across the country. You're, you're helping put millions of dollars into people's pockets and their businesses and companies, changing families, changing that stuff for people. But does it start that way? What is the dream as you begin to formulate your purpose that you have? So it, does, it obviously doesn't start that way. Um, <laughs> you know, overnight success that took 13 years, right? <laughs> right. I, I can't. I can't talk about all this without bringing up the fact that all these things that happened in 2008 still have not been healed yet. I'm still working through all of these things just in the civilian sector of life now, not being in the military. You know, like I'm still I'm still battling with forgiveness. I'm still battling with identity and who I am and you know, I'm still battling with my purpose. Like none of that has disappeared yet. Like that's still there sitting in the shadows and it's creeping back in every once in a while. So that battle is still taking place all the way up to this point in 2000 and, you know, 2013, 2014 timeframe. And then in the summer of 2014, uh, that's when Alex and I actually started dating was late summer of 2014. And I, I, I knew pretty quickly she was the one that I wanted to be with for the rest of my life. Like that was, there was no question about that, man. She was a freaking rock star. She had her career settled. She didn't need me. She wanted me type of thing. And that was kind of what attracted me to her so much uh, from a personality perspective. Uh, you'll, if you guys will get to see when we go home, we are the complete opposite with personalities. She is loud and bubbly and never met a stranger You know, she loves everybody. All right, Tommy in 2013, he was about 2% body fat and sprinting probably twice a day and eating a lot of oatmeal. I mean, maybe in his mind. I always knew we were going to be together. I saw him and I just knew. I just knew that I was going to date this guy. And I kind of stalked him via the gym social media. Uh, But I ended up dating someone else. And it was not a great relationship at all. Broke up with him. And it was meant to happen because I really probably would not have appreciated Tommy as much if I had not gone through this bad relationship. And then it turned out that we lived in the same apartment complex. And when I saw him walking his dog in the morning, I was like, there he is. (laughs) And uh, I would time leaving in the morning to go to school when he was walking his dog so we could cross paths. 
and found out that he was dating someone long distance at the time. He actually invited me over to hang out with them. And as soon as I met this girl, I was like, she is not gonna last. I was cuter. And they ended up breaking up like a month later. And then uh, it didn't take too long before he asked me out. My advice for someone who is in a relationship with someone who has gone through something traumatic is you have to be patient and you have to be willing to grow with them. I think it takes someone a long time to realize that they even have trauma that they're trying to process through. So the first step is them acknowledging that something big happened that has affected them in more ways than they realize. And they have to be just as willing to want to work on themselves and to heal from that trauma. And you need to encourage them in that healing journey. And it really does take the both of you. You need to encourage them in the healing and they have to be willing to work in that healing and growth. It really, it takes both parties. I don't think it's something one person can help with. Can't do. When I got out, you know, like, can't button my shirt, can't tie my shoes, can't cut a steak, you know, um, you can't play golf, can't play golf, can't throw a football, can't throw a baseball, you can't do this, you can't do that, and it's just like, can't play the guitar, that's something that I actually enjoy doing, I love playing the guitar, but I can't do it, and I'm just sitting there like, who are you to tell me what I can't do? Like, who are you? Like, just because I'm on a dead man profile right now, according to you, doesn't mean that I have to stay on one for the rest of my life. Like, I do have a choice in what I can and cannot do. And my bell. And I had a... We all have this vision in our head of what we want our life to look like. Everybody does. Like, if you cannot close your eyes and imagine what life looks like, you need to begin to do that. Go dream. And no dream is too big for you to be able to accomplish. It's just how much are you willing to sacrifice to go get it? What are you, what, what are, what are you willing to give up? Because in order to get, like I'm sure with you, to get where you are today, you've had to give some stuff up. You've had to sacrifice things. So... I got to ask this though, then, I mean, you're, you're going through this. Now you've got a wife who's helping you move through this situation. Okay. But on that same token, you're now, as we turn your life into helping and trying to find purpose, you're helping contractors. How do you find that? So Alex got a job teaching at Laney high school this is where Michael Jordan went to high school. Actually, just in case you were wondering, their gym has the big jump man logo on the outside of it. It's actually pretty cool. Um, so she got a job there and I ended up transitioning into real estate. So I sold real estate. I did $8 million in real estate my first year in Wilmington. Uh, pretty successful. Got a job as sales manager and then Hurricane Florence hit. When Hurricane Florence hit, real estate kind of came to a screeching halt. So I was like, okay, I got to find something else. Uh, my buddy, Justin Woodruff, uh, owned Ready Roofing Company, uh, based out of Clayton, North Carolina. He's like, Hey man, Florence is coming. Do you want a job selling roofs? Like, I guess people who don't need them might as well sell them, right? So that's how I got to the roofing industry. Yeah. Well, it was was that way. So 
fast forward about six months, I give Justin a call. Hey man, I absolutely hate selling roofs. This is a horrendous job, uh, but I love working for you. You're a great guy. I trust you. Um, what other options do you have for what I can do within the company? He goes, well, uh, you know how to fly a drone? You know how to take pictures? Sure. I can do that. It was a complete lie, by the way. I didn't even have a drone. Never flown one. Um, didn't even have a camera outside of my cell phone. So my grandfather bought me my first ever camera for 400 bucks. And that's what I went around with, uh, uh, Canon, uh, Rebel T7. That's what I was taking photos and videos with when I first got started, man. The cheapest freaking camera you can possibly get your hands on. Good old Best Buy type camera right there. Little, little Best Buy special. Yeah. Um, so I just started doing marketing videos. And fortunately, we didn't know any better. Uh, we thought what we were doing was the greatest thing ever. It was pretty much Jonathan Sherwood and Reddy Roofing. We were pretty, at the time in 2018, 2019, nobody else was really doing heavy videos like we were. Um, so I just kind of learned um, a lot from his guy because we ended up becoming really good friends um, of him helping me navigate through the uh, content creation stuff. And then Justin just kept challenging me every step of the way. He was like, hey, you know how to do this? Let's do Facebook ads. Hey, you know how to do that now. Now let's look at Google ads and local services and SEO and websites and, you know, all these other things that we could do. Let's talk about automations to make things easier. And, you know, so, you know, that company took a drastic increase in revenue. Um, I'm not saying I can take all the credit for that. Hurricane Florence obviously helped us out a lot. But I want to say we went from like 500 grand to north of $10 million in a matter of 18 months. So substantially fast growth, substantially fast growth. So, you know, 2020 rolls around, we got COVID, we got all that good stuff. And here's where, here's where I was told again, don't go do something. I ended up getting laid off uh, with, from Ready Roofing. And they're like, look, man, just go get unemployment, dude. Just, just go do it. It's the best things you can do for yourself. And I was like, no. I've relied on the government once in my life and I got screwed over. I'm not doing that again. So what I did is I was like, we're going to go start, we're going to go start Nubs Media. That's what we're going to go do. So Nubs Media started and, and off we went. Appreciate it. Nubs Media. And, uh, and off we went, dude. Every time I looked in my hand, I felt pain. I felt lying. I felt deceit. But I started Nubs Media in August of 2020 because I had to disassociate when I look at my hand to something positive. And I'd always wanted to own a company. I told my wife on our very first date that we went on, I said, I will own a company one day. I don't know what it's gonna be in and I don't know when it's gonna happen, but one day I will own a company. And by God, that's exactly what I did. Because I sold that company in October of 2022 last year. I ran a successful company, I sold that company, but right before that, I started working at Contractor Coach Pro, and in May, May 22nd of 2021, that's when my second child was born, Luke. So here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to write down three names. I want you to write down three names of people where their lives would forever be changed. If you could overcome some of these bad things that have happened to you and lean into who it is that you were meant to be. 
Who are those three people? For me, it's my wife, it's my kids, and as you saw, it was my great-grandmother. And I'm sure I've affected other people with, with that along the way who are in my family and closer to me, but I just want you to come up with three. The last thing we're gonna do is this. This golf ball right here, in my hands, it's worth what, four or five bucks? Would you agree with that? Maybe four or five dollars? How much is it worth if you put it in the hands of Tiger Woods? A lot more than four dollars, right? It's probably worth what, 60, 70, 100 million dollars? Just depends on whose hands it's in, right? This baseball, what, 10, 15 bucks? You can buy one of these? I don't know, I haven't bought a baseball in years. That's what it's worth in my hands. You put it in the hands of Nolan Ryan, how much is this baseball worth all of a sudden? Millions of dollars. This top rep manual is worth what, Michelle? 10 bucks? 10 bucks or so? It's what it's worth in my hands. What's it worth in your hands? What's it worth to you? Could it change your life if you take it home and you study it and you apply it? How much is this gonna be worth to you one day? Guys, if y'all ever need anything, there's my phone number, there's my email address. I'm more than happy to talk to any of you about anything. Feel free to reach out to me. Again, thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. I love every one of you. And um, come on up. Ladies and gentlemen, Tommy Richardson. What you've got here is an individual that has seen a lot, that has been through a lot, and you've overcome a lot. Um, it's been a pleasure to get to know your parents, and now we'll get a chance to have met your wife before, and your hospitality here in North Carolina has been can't be understated. Um, I think that you will find yourself on a stage, hopefully Liberty, in a, in a very short amount of time to be able to do special things for people. I'm looking forward to the rest of the day and have an opportunity to learn a little bit more, man. And I appreciate it, buddy. Absolutely, man. Thank, Thank you. you. No, I All appreciate right. you guys coming out here, Thanks, man. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate it, Absolutely. man. All right.